Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the show. Uh, obviously, the federal election was on Monday. Um, the results were somewhat surprising to some people. And so joining me now to discuss the final results of the election is Jeff Watson. He's a former conservative member of parliament. Kate Graham is a former leadership candidate for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party, the co-chair of the Ontario Liberals 2022 platform and their candidate in London North Centre next year. Kirsty Kirkup is a national reporter for the Globe and Mail, and Chris Hall is the host of CBC's The House Radio. Uh, I'll start now uh, with you, Kate. Uh, many people are saying that the Prime Minister uh, called the election, um, obviously in August, um, but the results of the election, according to some people, haven't changed all that much. Obviously, there are some individual writings that, uh, that flipped, but what would you say to a voter who is, you know, a little bit angry that uh, that we had to spend all of this money and then now we're just heading back to basically the same parliament. Sure. Well, first off, uh, thanks for having me on again, Wyatt. And it's a treat to get to have this chat with all of you. There's certainly a lot to unpack uh, from this week. Um, to your question, I'll start by kind of picking a little bit, if you don't mind, at the underlying assumption. And this was a big part of the campaign narrative was you know, why are we having this election and so on? And, you know, there's always good discussion to be had, but I think we need to be really careful about a message that we should be trying to avoid elections. Like there's something that should be put off, you know, just let people govern forever unchecked. Um, I teach political science at Western and Huron, and I had lots of students for whom this was their very first campaign. August is normally a really kind of sleepy time. And instead there were hundreds of thousands of people all across the country talking about the direction we want to go, talking about big policy ideas. So for me, the value of a campaign, it's not just the outcome at the end. And I actually do think there were some important changes that happened on Monday that we may be, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but we may be minimizing a bit. I think the real value of a campaign is the opportunity for us as Canadians to intentionally and deliberately talk about the direction that we're going. And this campaign, like everyone, uh, delivered that. And I want to see a lot more of that. People on doorsteps, text messaging, Zoom calls, whatever, talking to each other. Uh, it's not something for me that we should be trying to avoid as a country. If anything, it's something we should value more and, uh, and take advantage of the opportunities when they come up to talk to one another about the kind of country we want to be in, the direction we want to go in. Kirsty, I'll uh, ask you about sort of some specific races. Were there any uh, specific races at the local level, like in individual ridings that uh, sort of surprised you or that, you know, people weren't necessarily expecting to flip or to go one way that did? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question, Wyatt. I, I don't know if there's perhaps there's other people who want to weigh in on the kind of drill down at the local level and, and some of the writings that flipped. I think that maybe perhaps one thing that jumps out at me is um, some of the races that involve cabinet ministers. So uh, we know that uh, Miriam Monsef, uh, who, of course, uh, was running again in the riding of Peterborough, uh, Gwartha, uh, she lost her seat. And actually, the um, prime minister uh, went uh, to her riding in the final days of the campaign. There was a rally held there. I was on the road with him the last week of the campaign. And Miriam Monsef um, openly talked about the fact that, you know, this is always a, a close uh, race. And in this case, she was defeated. And of course, we did see as well, Deb uh, Schulte, who uh, also the uh, former seniors minister who uh, lost uh, her uh, seat as well. Um, uh, the Prime Minister also going uh, to, to her riding in the final days of the campaign. 
Um, and um, ultimately, there are four female cabinet ministers, three that were defeated, and one, of course, Catherine McKenna, who did not run again. So I think that's going to be an important kind of discussion going, going forward. What does Trudeau's cabinet look like in this parliament? Uh, but again, uh, some of the riding races that I was interested in included those uh, cabinet ministers who ultimately um, ended up uh, losing, losing the race. It's interesting, Peter. You mentioned Peterborough, which broke its uh, bellwether status, which was interesting. And then uh, you also mentioned cabinet, which is going to be interesting, obviously, because um, you know he's going to obviously have to try and have representation from uh, every part of the province. Um, so on that topic, the Liberals elected two MPs in Alberta, um, in uh, Calgary Skyview and Edmonton Centre, uh, Randy Bozenalt and Georgia Hall. So Jeff, I'll go to. Uh, you next. What do you think went wrong for the Conservatives, and uh, why do you think uh, James and uh, Jake Sahota lost their seats on Monday? Well, I think some of it is uh, local race, if you want to really kind of bore down into it. Uh, uh, in the case of Calgary uh, Skyview, uh, you run a popular uh, city councillor against uh, the incumbent there, who hasn't been an incumbent for very long, and in a pandemic parliament that was largely virtual. That's a real challenge in terms of that race. Uh, and again, in Edmonton Centre, Randy Boisano, almost like an incumbent, he was there before running against James Cumming. I, I had a concern all along, generally speaking, with a lot of the rookie MPs uh, who probably only had about five months on the ground face-to-face -face in their communities before we went into a virtual parliament. How would they fare? Would they be able to connect with voters? That's not to say there aren't some challenges ahead for the Conservatives on the prairies, generally speaking. Uh, we can talk about where, uh, maybe later on, about where uh, where the party may be rebranding itself or remaking its coalition, if you will, versus where they're at with the historic coalition. But voter turnout wasn't just down, uh, it's that voters didn't come to support the parties they did before. That was a problem for Justin Trudeau. It was also a problem for Aaron O'Toole. Chris, I'm going to ask you about party leadership. Um, uh, yesterday, I believe it was, there was a member of the National Council on the uh, Conservative Party, and perhaps I'll ask um, some others about this as well, but um, there was a member of the Conservative Party National Council who uh, started a petition to remove him. Now there's kind of go disagreements going uh, back and forth on National Council of the uh, Conservative Party between the National Council and the uh, president of the party, Rob Batherson, and then there's also uh, the Green Party, um, in which many people suspect that uh, turmoil will uh, arise in that party again. So speak maybe a little bit about party leadership and about uh, which leaders you uh, suspect we could see resignations from in the in the coming weeks. Oh, um, I, I don't know how many resignations we're going to see, but uh, you're absolutely right, Wyatt. The Conservatives um, will be having, a, I think, a deep discussion about a couple of things. The first is that Aaron O'Toole took the party in a different direction. He moved it more to the political center. He talked about spending, for example, $60 billion over 10 years on health care. So he wasn't as fiscally conservative, perhaps, as many would like. And he also, um, I think many people, if you look back at the campaign, will feel that a turning point was the way he managed the issues around gun control and the promise to uh, look into the repealing the ban on the 1500 assault style uh, firearms that the liberals had put in place through a cabinet order back in May of 2020. So I think people felt a little confused about what he was actually saying when he 
came out in the middle of the campaign and had to amend and add a footnote to the platform to say all those weapon, uh, firearms that are, are banned now would remain until this review was finished. So I think he will be one that will have at least some questions raised about the direction in which he took the party and that specific issue. Uh, Annamie Paul, I think, as you said, has had a lot of trouble with the, her internal uh, dissension uh, over her leadership. Um, if anyone is to resign, I suspect it might be her. She certainly hinted at that uh, during an interview and during the campaign. And Jagmeet Singh, look, I mean, I think he has some questions coming his way as well. The, the party did not really increase seat total. I think they just got one extra seat. They went from 44, um, you know, in 2015 down to uh, 2011, I'm sorry, down to, uh, to 24 and then now 25. And it's a little little hard to see where the growth is coming from. They were shut out in Toronto, which was, I think, a disappointment. Davenport was one riding they expected to win. Uh, they didn't pick up some seats where they thought they might in, in, uh, in the lower mainland. So all of them will face some questions um, and we'll maybe see if their futures might be decided before the next le formal leadership review in the case of the Conservatives anyway. Um, Kate, on the same topic of party uh, leadership, um, many people and there were many political pundits who were uh, saying that Justin Trudeau called the election if he didn't get a majority government. Um, many people suspecting that uh, he would face calls within his own party to uh, resign. So do you see Justin Trudeau staying on as leader of the Liberal Party? Yeah, this, this has been uh, sort of the obsession, I think, of the discussion in the last few days is you know, how many of these leaders will be on the next stage and so on. And, um, you know, this might sound a little, um, a little Pollyanna of me, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, I, I think for all of the parties, elections can and should be moments where they reevaluate, you know, what was the, what was their pitch to voters? What resonated? What didn't? Uh, we tend to lay so much of the success and blame at the feet of the leader as if they, you know, as individuals are responsible for the victories and the losses. And I mean, of course, to an extent that is true, but at the end of the day, a party is a collection of people who come together because they want to accomplish uh, specific things. And so I hope that for every party, um, I hope it's a lot more than just how do the leader do and you know how do the numbers stack up? It should be a much more introspective look at, you know, what are the ideas that we put forward that caught on? Um, we're in a minority setting right now. We actually are going to some leadership across all of the parts, uh, including being able to work together on things that Canadians expressed quite clearly matter to us right now, climate change, housing, childcare, and so on. And, uh, and so just maybe it's the political scientist to me, but I'm, I'm kind of craving a deeper discussion inside and outside of parties right now, where it's not just about should the leader stay or go, but instead, you know, who are we as a party? What is the message that we have for this opportunity uh, in this new environment to come together, I hope, and be able to deliver on things that we know people care about? Um, I'm just going to give you a quick follow-up question, uh, Kate, because I uh, seen you on uh, a panel on uh, with Steve Pakin, and uh, and I seen on your Twitter as well um, that you were at the Justin Trudeau event in London where uh, the Prime Minister had rocks thrown at him. So I'm just going to ask you, that was obviously um, seen as a very divisive moment and an unfortunate moment for Canada. Um, so I'm just going to basically say, in your view, uh, your political science view, and just in your view as a um, upcoming politician after next year. Um, how can we stop um, the divisiveness around um, politicians um, to this extent? And how can we make it back to where it used to be, where it was kind of, if you disagreed with someone, you showed it at the ballot box? Mm -hmm. oh, I think it's such an important question. So I, I was at that Justin Trudeau event and I had my 
one-year-old baby in my arms. There were lots of kids there, lots of seniors there. Uh, and there was actually a chain link fence between uh, the space. It was a patio that the event was happening. And then there was, I can only describe it as a huge mob of people screaming, yelling signs, uh, quite violent. I'll be honest with a baby in my arms. I was a little afraid about the tone. And then when things started to get thrown it, you know, it, it escalated to a whole other level. I, I caught eyes at one point with someone who was on the other side of the chain link fence and they were yelling and screaming and so on. And I can remember kind of thinking in that moment, like, it looks like a cry for help. Like I, I can't imagine a scenario where you feel so angry and so powerless that, you know, being an event screaming at a political leader and throwing things at them feels like a reasonable form of expression. You know, you gotta be in a place for that to seem uh, okay. And so, you know, rather than just saying like, that's not okay and we should, you know, get rid of that from politics. I actually think we need to be paying attention to the people who right now are feeling so threatened and so alone and so powerless that they're resorting to these things that otherwise seem bananas. Uh, we need to be understanding what it is that, you know, that we can do to hopefully come together. I, I like to think that's what happens after elections. Campaigning and governing are not the same. And I hope that it's not just a deepening of that divide, but instead we have an opportunity to say, okay, there's clearly a lot of Canadians who are not happy with how things are going right now. Uh, they're angry, they're upset, and we need to hear from them as well because they have a right to, to be heard and it can't be throwing rocks at someone. It's got to be something else. See, I'll go to you because you were obviously on the campaign trail. I was at uh, two of Justin Trudeau's press conferences, and at both of them, there were obviously lots of uh, protests there. I was at the one uh, in Cambridge, which was probably one of the um, most, I guess you could say, kind of heated ones with a lot of protesters. So just um, how big of an issue do you see um, division in an election? Obviously, it's an election, and there's different points of view, and so there is going to be uh, division. But how big of an issue just do you see kind of this ultimate division in the political sphere? Yeah, I think one of the interesting discussions that's unfolded um, as we've watched these protests play out in the context of the election campaign is some people saying, well, political leaders, you know, in years past or, you know, in previous decades have have always faced threats. And I think that is, of course, fundamentally true. If you are a politician putting yourself out there, there's always going to be a degree of, of threat. Um, that being said, though, I do think that experts have pointed to the changing nature of the situation that is unfolding. And there were a few things that made these protests unique. Uh, number one, social media, of course, and, um, you know, our experts have described, uh, of course, uh, the, the movement of particularly the far right on social media and how how social media was used as a tool to obviously quickly share the address of locations and get people to converge on a particular site um, uh, in, in short order. And then also there was the element of the fact uh, that um, this election was playing out uh, during the context of COVID-19. So I'll take you to when I was in Bolton, where the there was a, a big protest that ultimately uh, the event uh, was cancelled because of um, the security threat. And um, it was a, a very surreal event because essentially we were outdoors in a parking lot of a Hilton hotel kind of backed into a corner. Our media bus was parked behind a stage, if you will, as the 
placard for uh, the liberals. It said true to want it because the party, by the way, decides to wrap the bus, not the journalists who are, are on it. And we were waiting to, to find out if the leader, Justin Trudeau, was going to, to come out. And security was obviously in the process of assessing this event. But why were we standing in a parking lot for this event? Well, they wanted to have a rally. They didn't want to have a bunch people because um, again you know the the risk of COVID is um, reduced when you are outdoors and so there were unique aspects of the security threat because of this very reason it's easier to secure a site if you have a leader for example going into a hotel and security at each door for example to to screen those who are able to get close to the leader so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there's a bit of nuance that people maybe are missing talking about some of the historical threats, um, of course, that existed for leaders, but there are a f there were a few different dimensions to what we saw in this campaign with, again, the element of social media and also, um, you know, the kind of nature of the events that were being held. Um, there was a, an event later on in the campaign that was held in Brampton, uh, Ontario, 400 people packed into a room. Of course, that led to questions of why are you doing this during COVID? And I think, frankly, the answer was that because of security threats, they couldn't hold that type of event outside. So they needed to have it in a um, event in an indoor space. Okay, Jeff, um, I'm going to go back to party leadership and just a question around uh, the Conservative Party, and perhaps you can give some more insight on just the idea of Aaron O'Toole staying on as leader, but then also just who do you think is, because obviously Aaron O'Toole wasn't uh, the right person that Canadians seed uh, as leader of the Conservative Party to be the Prime Minister, so um, which, is there anybody in particular that that you're like, yeah, if that person became leader of the of the Conservative Party, then uh, I, I do really think that they would be able to appeal to Canadians. I think that would be putting the cart before the horse. Uh, first of all, the question, uh, the pro forma question that usually follows elections at the first uh, annual general meeting for all political leaders is the question of whether there should be a leadership review uh, or not, uh, unless of course you're Maxime Bernier, uh, there is no mechanism for removing the leader, so it's his party in perpetuity. But um, so members are going to be thinking about what the election results mean to them. You've obviously heard the leader out making the case for why um, he thinks he needs a bit more time. I think central to the question um, on uh, by the time we get to uh, an annual general meeting will probably be the question of what what this election, uh, what direction Aaron O'Toole is looking uh, to go. I think um, if you're talking to insiders, uh, there's, there's, some there's some quiet talk, maybe not so quiet talk about remaking what the Conservative coalition is. You heard the comment during the campaign, Aaron O'Toole said, this is not the party of your father uh, or your grandfather. Now, curiously, he campaigned with Brian Mulroney, but not Stephen Harper. And there may be some messages in that. I don't know that Aaron O'Toole is, is, is sort of pivoting ideologically or sort of, you know, looking at a set of issues, just come to the center a little bit. I think he aims to remake the coalition. Uh, maybe it's less about rural Canada and more about the big cities, uh, if you will. Um, that may mean a, diff a different set of demographics, a different set of issues, if you will. So he's looking, to, I think, to play on different terrain. Every conservative party that's governed has a coalition that they have to manage. So I think the leader, if there's a leadership question or there's questions around the leader, is it, do we manage 
the existing coalition better. You may see people emerge like Pierre Polyev or others who may quietly or maybe not so quietly talk about that. Maybe it's through proxies. Or do we remake that coalition and do something uh, boldly different? Uh, regardless of whether we have the review or not, um, I think uh, the, the question about direction will be a significant one. If we're remaking the coalition, that may mean people like the PPC will be around as a fact with or without Justin Trudeau as the Liberal leader. All right, Chris, uh, I'll ask you one last question um, regarding uh, uh, Jeff just mentioned uh, the People's Party. Uh, and it's interesting because as much as they didn't win a seat in this election, they still uh, took some seats away uh, from the Conservatives. Obviously, the majority of people think that, you know, PPC supporters are former Conservatives, which I think a certain part of that is true. Um, although there, there, were, there were some pundits that were saying some of them uh, were former Green uh, supporters who didn't believe in vaccinations. There's uh, lots of different feelings around that. But um, how big of an impact overall do you think the People's Party uh, had? And, and do you actually think that they were the uh, party that took seats away from the Conservatives? Oh, that's a big question. Um, let me start with the, the People's Party and what it stands for. Um, it, it says it's a party of freedom, but it coalesced around this question of whether mandatory vaccines should be in place and whether people should have to prove that they've been vaccinated to go about parts of their daily lives, going to a theater or going to a restaurant, that sort of thing. That's what I think fueled the growth of, of the People's Party, uh, as opposed to other aspects uh, of their platform. They are not obviously strong on Im immigration. They are fiscally conservative, more libertarian in the way they believe that people should have a minimal amount of government interference in their life. I'll be watching to see why, it, if the party continues to have support and continues to be a, a political a movement if COVID recedes into the background and the vaccines become less and less of an issue. Um, do I think they took seats away from the Conservatives? I mean, the Conservatives, um, you know, there was a 5% five five vote across the country. They were stronger in some areas, including in Jeff's part of the world in southwestern Ontario. I don't know if they cost them directly seats. It didn't help. But as you pointed out, a lot of pollsters in particular felt that the, the collapse of the Green Party or in ridings where the Green Party wasn't present this time, uh, that, that some of those people who had voted Green in the past might have voted for PPC as well. So to answer your question, I, I, I think they weren't helpful to the Conservative cause. I can't at this point point to specific ridings they lost because of the PPC vote, but it certainly didn't help. The big question, I think, is more about where does the People's Party find itself um, as we look ahead to a next election or the next four years? Uh, is it possible for them to carve out a niche of people who are disillusioned with all the political parties and perhaps in particular with the Conservative Party, given Bernie's own past association with them? All righty, well, uh, go ahead. Can Jeff. I jump in on that question? Uh, yes, actually, I think on the question of costing uh, the Conservative Party of Canada seats, I think I think actually uh, the, the more interesting split was the progressive split. There were a number of places where um, the progressive split allowed conservative candidates to win. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that number is actually more than, than the PPC would have, would have cost the conservatives. I think the, uh, for those who've done the deep dive on the, on the switcher question for PPC and CPC, maybe about 30 to 40% of them, uh, 40 at the top end, uh, were switchers from the CPC, so I wouldn't suggest that the you know that was a huge factor in, in a lot of seats. But that progressive split, remember, in Justin Trudeau's great strength in terms of a majority government, it was unifying the progressive coalition behind him. 
And so uh, some of that's fragmenting a little bit. If you get below the top line numbers, there are a lot of interesting sort of regional things. And when you dive down into the numbers, the only thing I will say, um, regardless of who the PPC are, they're the only party that was actually up and up in every region of the country in terms of their vote. Now they're starting from a small base, mind you, but uh, the referendum being on the question of uh, vaccines today, but again, that question, if, if there's going to be a remaking of the conservative coalition, it may be, uh, that we create other issues um, where uh, the traditional coalition might find itself seeping over either to the PPC or we'll see what happens with Derek Sloan if he gets this True North party off the ground officially or whether that was a press release. Uh, there could be some options for more fragmentation uh, in the traditional conservative coalition. Alrighty, well, uh, Jeff, Chris, uh, Christy, and Kate, thank you all so much for joining me. And uh, it was great chatting with you all and uh, look forward to uh, getting into the next parliament. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us on. Thank you.